Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Inkstained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and, in fact, what is going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, let me tell you something. I've got, I've got good news for you, bad news for me. So leaving church on Sunday, my pastor said, his, he was there with his lovely wife, so David and Jennifer Glade, and David said, oh, I've convinced Jennifer to start listening to Ink Stained Wretches. And I said, I was immediately scared, like, oh no, like what is it that we've been saying and what is it that Eliana has been saying, indeed, that might offend the tender ears of these Anglicans? And do you know, and I, I was like, oh boy, I, I hope it wasn't too spicy. You know what they said? They love you. They adore you. You are, you are beloved by clergy and clergy spouse. So, well, you know what? I feel like your takeaway should be, Chris. What's that? I really bring my full self to this. I don't really leave a lot in the locker room. This is true. Because I don't, you know, you though, you say a lot of colorful stuff in the locker room and then you bring like appropriate Chris to the podcast. So, yes. you should, you should no. not leave it in the locker room. No, I should definitely. Given the fact that I have to get two children through college, I should definitely keep leaving those things in the locker room. That is, it is important that I not bring my full self to my public. Let's hop to, since you kept like packing items oh into my this. Gosh, oh, come like, on. we have to talk about this. We have to talk about that. And I didn't care about any of it, but let's start. <laughs> um, let's start with, okay, we come in today and I just like want to have my coffee and you know, relax and complain and, and Chris, oh, we got to talk about the documents. So, you know, first up on our front page, documents coverage. I will start with the news and get to the story. Six more items containing classified documents. Classified documents about his own classified documents. Classified documents. Get access to classified documents. Is why did the president have these documents? CNN was first to bring you the discovery of documents. Chris, we talked about this last week, but we have new revelations, more documents found, more Biden documents found, and done, done, done. First of all, before we get to Mike Pence's documents, Mike Pence has a very nice house in Indiana. It's a nice we've seen home. All these aerial shots nice of Mike Pence's like mansion in Indiana. Well, but remember, what they paid for a mansion in Indiana would buy you a townhouse in Alexandria. It is a. It's it is so depressing you know what i gotta i gotta pack it up here and move to like <laughs> god knows wherever i think Car not here carmel indiana carmel indiana you know what? let's zillow this is it carmel or carmel indiana Car carmel yeah carmel indiana my mother an indiana well she was born in okay. michigan but raised in indiana both my sisters are native hoosiers i should know i should have known let's zillow this quick and and look up <laughs> <laughs> i want to i want to look up homes there well, while you while you look at look yeah. up, look up Carmel, Indiana, yeah. see what you can get in Carmel. I don't know if that's where they live, but that's a place you might live in Indiana. The Pence document story. So, I mean, these houses look like the homes I would very much like to own here, but can't. How much? Um, how much? How much does it cost? I'm not going to say that on this podcast. You can but, say you're not buying them unless you're you're not moving to Carmel, Indiana to buy a home. 
Well, no, I put in the in the price range, but these are very nice homes. You can get, I will say, you you can get quite a lot there for. Yes, you can definitely get the house from Tommy Boy. You can get the house <laughs> from Tommy Boy for one point one million dollars in Carmel, Indiana. It's, it's a it's it's different. At one point, the I remember when Mary Landrew was running for re-election, the Republican attack ad on her this was like, "This is like the Mike Pence house for." Yeah. Eight seventy five. All buys new, you brand a new, brand new mansion, but with when, an exercise room in the basement. When Mary, when Mary Landrieu was running for re-election, Republican attack ad was like, "She doesn't even live in Louisiana anymore. She lives in a one point two million dollar townhouse on Capitol Hill." And I'm like, "Where's that? That's a good deal. Where's she yeah, storing yeah, that? Exactly. That's amazing." Wait, when you when you put. When you increase the price range even more, you can't even get stuff at like the top of the price range. Yes, welcome. There are no houses that expensive. That's as as you can't. My mother once said about Wheeling, West Virginia. Somebody somebody said that a person had built a three million dollar house in Wheeling, West Virginia. My mother said you can't build a three million dollar yeah. house in West Virginia. You can spend three million dollars on a house, but you can't build one that's worth three million dollars because no. you can buy the biggest house in town for nine hundred thousand dollars. It's that's how it is. That's how most of America understands real estate. Whereas in Washington, people are cutting each other's throats to get into a split level with a quarter acre. Okay, let's hit the documents. Okay, that's your. Oh, now you want me to talk? Okay. My my take was Mike Pence has a nice (laughs) nice house. Take away Mike Pence. Uh, Yeah, nice crib. I want a cribs actually, an MTV cribs on the. On the oh, I would do the twenty twenty four contenders. That should be a Chris, ink stained wretches special edition. Special edition twenty twenty four cribs. I would total. I'm down. We should do an episode. We need that. We should do it, and because now a series with the YouTube with the YouTube. Now we can do it. Anyway, Mike Mike Pompeo's floor plan. What's the story? Look, the what Pence did was very media savvy. Why? Okay, so if he waited and got found out, that would be bad. But I don't think he was going to get found out because it sounds like what he had were no— people may or may not know this. You know this. Something that the vice president writes is can automatically be classified, right? We have classification rules that are such that the notes that you make for yourself can be classified automatically. It's kind of silly billy. And I'm sure that if we, and our friend Megan Kelly made a big point about this, and I thought it was a good one, which was go search all their houses now, right? If this is where we are, go to Bill Clinton's house, go to George W. Bush's house, go to, you know, go to Obama's house, get them, because there's something, right? There's, they all have something. So it was good for Pence to get it out now and not have it come out later. But also it was, it was smart in this way. It was a reminder that Mike Pence is a pretty big deal and that Mike Pence is running for president or uh, he is engaged to run for president. He has a prom. He has given a presidential campaign a promise ring. And (laughs) the the story got him in the news and it put him on the same footing as Trump and Biden. And I do not know if I buy that. That's like saying that's like saying. Uh, why would he want to be on the same footing as them for completely bad Well, things? nobody cares about the documents now. I That I totally agree with. I also think that Pence having the documents, I mean, it gives the lie. When I was at Politico, oftentimes, okay, 
like, let's say half the stuff that Trump did was bad, genuinely bad, crazy. Okay, the other 50%, we'd be sitting in these White House meetings, and, you know, I was the only person who leaned to the right in these meetings, and I would have to say... Guys, you realize, like, if if Ted Cruz were president, if Marco Rubio were president, they would be doing exactly. They would also be nominating Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. This isn't some like off the rails Trump thing. These are run of the mill, you know, right of center Republican views. And I do feel like the treatment of the Trump document things, you know, it was bananas that he didn't just like return them. That was that was the crazy part, but. The media did try to get, like, totally hysterical totally. about the national security implications of this, which, like, we don't yet know what they and are. And right. so they approached it with a hysteria of, there are nuclear secrets in there, and it's Iran, and it's North Korea, and oh my gosh. When, like, this stuff happens all the time, and the only person who is treated in this hysterical fashion is Trump. Well, I think part of it was the satisfaction— the Democrats and the mainstream press felt about getting to turn lock her up on its head, right? That Trump's prosecution politically of Hillary Clinton for her mishandling of state secrets and the fact that it, however however we score it, was certainly a material part of her defeat in 2016. The Democrats' decision to nominate a person under investigation for mishandling of state secrets was probably not wise. And to be able to turn it around and the hypocrisy component made the story so much more potent. But as he often has, Trump, as you said, puts the lie to so many of the status quo, the the norms of the status quo for good and for ill. So and you say it's I get why the Democrats wanted to do it, but the media aren't supposed to be the Democrats. No, know? no, I know. Well, so. uh, and, and there is an, uh, an unfortunate degree of overlap. Yeah. But also. Then when the Biden story comes out, they have to flog the Biden story. And as you said, with they did last week, as you said, they, their hearts weren't in it, but they still had to flog yeah, the story. Not not feeling it in their right. kishkas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to say, to say, like, no, we're we care about documents. We care about documents very much. It's prior, a grave offense. Prior to Trump, nobody was worried about Barack Obama or George W. Bush having handwritten notes in their homes, right? It was not a concern. Nobody really cared whether Joe Biden had some notes that he had, because who cares, right? It doesn't matter. Well, and I will say, like, I I, kind of sort of care. You know, Trump apparently kept some of the Kim Jong-un from like a history perspective. I would like that to be the property of the United States. Like it it should be in in a museum or in it, it. I don't imagine there being like a Trump library. Oh, it's going to be awesome. Um, there is, but, and it's going but really, to be really like awesome. that should be showcased somewhere, and it's not his. It's not. It's not his. But here's here's my point: the norms that were set post during the Cold War and post Cold War about the presidency, and were all predicated on the ex presidents club, right? And the powers of the current presidents, the the, the presidents who were in office at each turn was predicated on the idea that everybody went to Harvard, everybody was in the club, right? Obama was the closest to not being out, you know, out of that mold, but he was president of the Harvard yeah, Law Review. he only went to yeah. Columbia. Yeah, exactly. He was president of Harvard and Law Review. And he was Review. a transfer student, exactly. shutter. Exactly, exactly, Occidental. I wonder how yeah. Occidental College, uh, Occidental's like, Barack Obama went here for a while, but anyway, 
Trump's abuses of his position in office and now out of office reveal the, the fraudulence, if I may say, of the rules, right? So we have all these rules about document maintenance, and Hillary Clinton didn't follow them. And Donald Trump really didn't. Like, Donald Trump went for the gusto. And her, by the way, her her behavior, and, like, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, was much more dangerous than what he did, which is, like, taking the documents out Well, afterwards. we don't know what, I, I agree, um, but I agree with an asterisk, and the asterisk is, I don't know what we don't Trump We don't know what the document, So yeah, it could be really yeah. dangerous what um, he took. But her selfish, dangerous secrecy was very, was very dangerous. But anyway, document coverage, I, it does, is Pence... The is is Fonzie jumping the shark? Is is are the Pence documents finally the document story that can allow us to stop talking about the documents until we get real evidence on Trump? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean we're not getting a Pence special counsel, right? Because because next Nikki Haley's going to be like, I have some documents. I took some stuff. What are y'all talking about? Yeah. I got some over here. Okay, should we talk about something that's not a national security threat? And that Do is it. George Santos. Congressman Santos, will you resign? You're accused of fabricating almost every single part of your life. Congressman, what's your reaction to members of your own party Pardon calling me? for your resignation? Do you think that he can serve effectively? Why do you deserve to represent you from New York? The way. Will you step down? Uh, Mr. Santos, uh, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, George. <laughs> George, George, George Santos, other than... I like a quarter zip sweater under a jacket, and I will tell you that today I almost wore one. But then Santos is ruined. What Glenn Youngkin did for the fleece vest, George Santos is is he, doing in the opposite direction for the quarter zip. It's a real travesty for all oh of no, us guys. I'm sorry, Patrick. I brought bought my husband like so many of those. I love quarter the quarter zips. zip, but the quarter zip with the jacket with the suit is a kind of a you're, it's a it's a little bit of a push, right? You're going for it, but for a for a for a husky gentleman. It's a nice sort of girdle. It's a nice sort of covering down here. <laughs> covers up the space. I, I see Santos. I'm like, bro, I feel can you. We I get, get your, it. Can we get your fashion feedback for husky women? Like, what should husky women do for that I, area? I have no it's idea because I would never follow, area. because I would never say that a woman was husky. So I don't know. So I, could, I couldn't do that. But he would totally say that just in the locker room, all guys. Right, guys, all right. don't sell me out, Pastor. Pastor, don't. No, 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 no. Okay, a, you're breaking wretch privileges. That's a, that's, that's wretch privilege. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Santa, so the the George Santos story doesn't matter, but he is being covered and investigated. To a, if I see one more Politico playbook that is like the lead about George Santos, as if this is the well, it kind of is the talk of the town in Washington, which just shows you how stupid Washington is. And it's a funny story. It's a fine... Fun, to it la- is not important. It's not important. And the Washington Post has been just in a in a froth, like they're going to bring down George Santos. And you know the what? The amount of coverage is so outsized to the amount of power this person actually has. It is absurd. It is, it is truly, truly wonderful. And... what. What was the Kevin McCarthy, the new Kevin McCarthy standard? Not a crime, right? So unless George Santos is convicted, unless he is found to have engaged in criminal conduct, he gets to keep his committee position. He gets and, to he gets but to stay not, in, but can't be on the intel committee. Well, you know, you, sometimes the quarter zip is down, sometimes the quarter zip is up. There's good news and there's bad news, but the I get why. And by the way, you know, one of the things about the pylon with George Santos. 
it's because it doesn't matter that the pylon occurs, right? Because the stakes are so low, it's a free fire zone because you're not hurting, you're not hurting any of the sacred cows, right? You're not going after anything important. There's really nothing on the line. And, you know, did when did what did Elise Stefanik know and when did she know it about George Santos allegedly ripping off a dog charity? Who cares, right? It doesn't matter. It's one of 435, blah. And it's because it doesn't matter that it gets so much coverage because you don't offend any of your sources or any of your readers beating up on George Santos because he has no one. Except for apparently Matt Gates. Yeah, it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Another ridiculous thing. Well, it's <laughs> not really ridiculous. I, the, the reaction is ridiculous. But up next we have we have the shot and chaser here. We have Jeff Bezos visiting a struggling Washington Post newsroom. And I have been calling on Jeff Bezos to engage on the Washington Post, use his billions to make the Washington Post great. Well, he's not really using his he's not really using his billions but he's using his eminence he's showing (laughs) up so he showed up and he was sitting there while they talked about stories about him which you know the new york times by the way is loving this yeah it's so good for them for covering it because i always complain that these papers they act like colleagues not competitors and they should be covering the crap out of each other they do love the new york times never tires of defecating on the washington post well i feel like a lot of times they don't cover it but okay so the the times reports that about last week during the meeting on thursday mr bezos's retinue stood outside the room earpiece is clearly visible as he left a post employee wearing a red shirt emblazoned with the insignia of the post union guild stopped him and asked why the company was laying people off without offering buyouts first, according to three people with knowledge of the meeting. Mr. Bezos responded that he was at the Post to listen, not answer questions, and underscored his commitment to the Post's journalism. And then this week, the Post laid off 20 reporters. I do find it kind of ridiculous that like these people think that because a rich person owns them, they are like entitled to his largesse and that this doesn't have to be a money-making business. And that kind of entitled attitude, is, I think, is ridiculous. Yes. And I would say, so these layoffs, did you mention those yet? Yeah, I did. Okay. I want to make sure you got to the chaser. Fully. Yes. So they laid off 20 people, which was fewer than expected. But, you know, their demand for buyouts and their outrage that they're owned by somebody wealthy and therefore there should be no layoffs and this thing really shouldn't have to turn a profit. It shouldn't have to act like a business, I think, is is ridiculous. Here's the the Times descriptor of the layoffs. Layoffs affected several departments, including the Post Metro staff, unfortunate. According to three people with knowledge of the decision, the online gaming vertical launcher was shut down, woof, as well as Kids Post, a section of the newspaper for children, good. According to a person with knowledge of the changes, Newsroom has more than 1,000 employees. I don't want anyone to get laid off, but I don't think that the gaming vertical or the kids post trying to get kids to read the newspaper. Don't try to get kids to read the news. Don't just let it go. Um, It's not going to happen. They can read the adult newspaper. They can read the adult newspaper. It's okay. It's all right. Focus on high schools, focus on outreach to those groups. Don't, you don't need a kids post. And then I would point out the Washington post made some hires for the opinion section, including two of my colleagues, Ramesh Panuru and Rui. My former colleague. Yep. And Rui Tashira, 
of the American Enterprise Institute are joining as so they've they hired a bunch seven new opinion contributors and this mimics what the New York Times has has been doing for a while where like you've all live in my boss peace be upon him is he is one of the editorial basically it's a it's it's a stable of columnists that you can bring in on rotation they hired seven including National Review's Jim Garrity but great choices definitely with Rui and Ramesh, good voices and cool. Well, I think it does show, and we've mentioned this, that David Shipley, yes. who took over the opinion page at the Washington Post, is making an effort to bring in a more di- more diverse set of voices. Yep. And unlike, I would say, unlike the New York Times, which, you know, brings in people who are, I would say, like, do not really represent the right at this time. And where the right is, like a lot of these people are, are more representative of that. That's right. And it includes others like Gabriel Pasquini, all name team, an Argentinian journalist and fiction writer who's going to commission pieces from the Spanish speaking world and write on Latin America. Amanda Ripley, formerly of the Atlantic, formerly of Politico, formerly of Time and Natasha Sarin, who worked for Janet Yellen. So these are mainstream, left, right, Democrats, Republicans, putting together this stable of writers. Good for you, Washington Post. All right, up next, Chris, this has been, I mean, this should be my obsession. Should I just move this down to my obsession? No, you have a great obsession. Well, my obsession has been this money that the startup Semaphore took from Sam Bankman-Fried, and they wouldn't say how much it was, and then they said, well, we're going to let the legal process play out, and this, that, and the other, and they just, they were not handling it very deftly, whereas every politician and charity that took money from this guy was giving it back. So the New York Times has a piece that says they finally gave it back. Dun, dun, dun. So the Times writes, some of, some of the other media companies that Sam Bankman-Fried gave to, including Vox Media and ProPublica, said they would return contributions shortly after Mr. Bankman-Fried was arrested. Yeah, that, that w- would have been the expectation. Semaphore had said it would wait for guidance from legal authorities to determine its next steps. Semaphore, which publishes with a staff of about 60 people, raised about $25 million overall before its launch in October. It struck deals with more than worth more than two million with a bunch of advertisers yada, yada so in this article it says that they i believe they ra- they they raised 10 million dollars from sam bankman fried so of the 25 million dollars that they raised before their launch 10 million of that came from sam bankman fried and that helps you understand why they weren't wow they weren't running to give it back so they're okay they've they've replaced the funds I don't know that they, it, it appears to me, they haven't replaced the funds, but it tells you that they're making a lot of money off of selling ads. So that's good. Moving on. Rupert Murdoch, this broke yesterday afternoon. He had floated the idea of merging Fox News and News Corp. Bringing it back together. He had to sp- They had to split up the company. They were split. He was going to bring them back together. The idea of doing them of doing that was the subject of an activist campaign by a hedge fund. And he announced yesterday that he was not going to do that, though I've seen varied coverage that basically he's not going to do it right now. So it's not clear if he would still like to do this in the future. So the thing, you know, basically they took the print business. The, the, 
at once upon a time it was they took the print business and spun it off because it was a loser. And they put the they had the profitable business. Basically, they had the profitable business and the non-profitable business. And this is back, you know, to the days when Fox News was paying the bills for the Wall Street Journal losing money and paying the bills for the New York Post and that stuff. I don't know where the 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 position I don't know what the revenue flows are like, and I have not looked lately, but this it seemed weird. I think part of it was just wanting to have it back together for the sake of having it back together, and I think that just didn't make sense. Okay, so the Times writes that the deal, if it had gone through, would have put a collection of news and entertainment assets, including Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, the Fox Broadcasting Network, and TMZ under the same corporate umbrella— when it was initially proposed, Mr. Murdoch was said to be interested in the potential for cost savings and the possibility of integrating some of the companies. But executives and investors had significant questions about the rationale of the deal. When Rupert Murdoch initially separated the two companies, he argued that Fox's TV and movie business and News Corp's digital media businesses were better off separate. Lachlan Murdoch had told investors in 2019 that the companies would not reunite. And then I, my understanding is that they own a lot of real estate as well yes. and that there was a strong belief among shareholders that the real estate investments were also better off as a separate part of this. To my, you know, limited, I think that limited understanding of this. This sounds right to me. Okay, Chris, the Daily Beast reports that Nate Silver and his 538 website are on the chopping block at ABC. I have no opinion on this, so And we talked about this we talked about this before. Yeah, when the first news about the possibility of Disney spinning off ABC. Oh, okay. So when we talked about so in the who's the new guy now that Iger's back? Chapek was the old guy. Chapek was the old guy. So, so now that Iger's back, you know, what what might Disney do? And Market Watcher said, you know, they can spin off ABC because ABC is kind of a dud. What about ESPN? Like, wh what are they going to do? So now we hear that ABC is looking at dumping 538, which doesn't make money. Nobody's ever, nobody's ever figured out how to use Nate Silver in 538. To, to date, no one has correctly figured out how to use it because it's been both too much. What do you and, think? Okay, so... It's been both too much and too little. So at certain points, it was like Nate. So back when everybody, after the 2012 election and people believed it, this was when data was the religion of America's elites, right? Data will solve all the problems. Data has all the answers. And 538 had a very lofty ambition that it was going to data solve all the problems of everything. And it was going to be sports and it was going to be this and it was going to be all that stuff. And they never had the resources to do it right. ABC never really did it upright and how to use it and how to do it. I don't know. I kind of feel like silver would be better off on his own. I kind of feel like silver would be better off with this. He doesn't have, they don't have a very big staff anymore. They've let, they all, a bunch of positions have gone unfilled and they've been on starvation rations for a while, sort of just hanging out, but it's never the, the, Promise of 538 has never been realized for a bunch of reasons, but a lot of them have to do with how their corporate parents have dealt with them. The other thing I would say is Democrats hate Nate Silver, and they're not going to stop hating Nate Silver. And they're not going to stop hating Nate Silver for a bunch of reasons, but the big one is that they feel betrayed from 2016, and they're mad that Nate Silver told them the truth which is Donald Trump had a low but significant possibility 
of winning the presidency, but they didn't listen. What they saw was, they said, what, 90%, 88%, (laughs) we got it. And then when it didn't happen, they were mad. And they'll, they'll never forgive him. And whatever else comes along, they'll never forgive him for that, and the rest of it will be pretext. Okay. Oh, well, this one, Chris. Wow. So the big brouhaha in right-wing media has been the Daily Wire's attempt to bring on Steven Crowder and his podcast, because the Daily Wire is acquiring these big podcasts. Yeah, they rich. They rich. And... They tried to hire Steven Crowder for $50 million, his podcast. What um, a world. And, what And then a they world. told him that if you're boycotted on YouTube or yeah, if you Apple. Yeah, if, if you get, if you get or, delisted, deplatformed, your pay goes down. Yeah. And he went on a rant that said. Let's hear. Let's, let's listen to a little bit of Louder with Crowder and his rant. Big tech is in bed with big con. The people you thought, the people I thought were fighting for you, a lot of it has been a big con. Now, I'm specifically avoiding naming names or going after individuals uh, in this video because I genuinely hope that those I'm addressing, and you know who you are, have a change of heart. Don't sign, don't sign these contracts. I know, I now know what you are signing out there. I have the luxury of not having to. You know, let me go through this. If any of the major platforms issues a content strike such that Crowder cannot be monetized on such platform, the fee will be reduced by 25%. And then another 20% of it happens on Apple. And then another 10% of it happens on Facebook. And then another 10% of it happens on Spotify. And then if you get a, then if you get a strike, meaning a suspension, another 20%. Just to drive it home. You get hit by a car, you have a sick day. You could lose $100,000 a day. This is what's sent out to everybody. So slavery, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. But then. He's the new, he's the new Django Unchained. <laughs> Steven Crowder Unchained. But then they pushed back basically explaining like, well, you know, YouTube and the Apple Store and these things are how we make money. And yeah, like, this is a business. If we make less are- money on you, we're going to pay you less money. And it's like. Way to be a woke tyrant. (laughs) How dare you? It is wild. It is wild. Wild. And and the part that's wild to me. But we're available. Daily Wire, if you want to acquire us, we are available for like, we would take, yeah. I'm good. for You can have Ink Stained Wretches for a cool 25 mil. We're putting it out there right now. And we are willing to agree to all your stipulations. Absolutely. I will... Tasteful nudity, no problem. Whatever you want, <laughs> I'm here for it. You got it. For 25, you'd be surprised what I wouldn't do for 25 mil. But there is an object lesson here. Slavery. We're yes. willing to Let's be talk about for it. 25. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Indentured servitude, I'm open. The, there's also a thing here about how the right-wing media works. This is just business, right? Ben Shapiro has, has established a really successful business, and he makes a lot of money, and he wants to have a bigger and more successful business. The response to Stephen Crowder's response was just hilariously pitiful, crazy. And I, 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 don't know, I don't know what to say about it, but I do know what to say about the response to it from other right-wing outlets, which is, come on, guys, don't fight. Why are you guys fighting? We're all on the same team. Why are you fighting? It's like, no, you're not on the same team. Your media companies. That's what you are. And when the Washington Post fires people, 
and the New York Times kicks him in the teeth. People don't say, New York Times, why are you fighting with the Washington Post? You guys were on the same team. So, hey, right-wing media, let it go. You're just media. And you have a point of view that you're selling, and that's fine. <laughs> just relax. Okay. That the that rant about being offered twenty five or fifty million fifty million dollars and then twenty five. Like, all right, Chris, we have like twenty five items left well, here. Let's go. Okay. What the heck? Take, and we're gonna move us, through. Take, take us to Tuckertown. Oh well, I was just amused by <laughs> Colin, Colin driving down to Tuckertown, <laughs> steering wheel driving <laughs> big like. Like an old land yacht, like one of those big Buick station wagons. Okay, I want you to just, I, I saw this, it was so funny. I just had to share a little bit of it. But this is, listen to Tucker Carlson and his intense effort to, well, just listen. One thing you should know is that the most popular president in American history was Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. Yet somehow, without a single vote being cast by a single American voter, Richard Nixon was kicked out of office and replaced by the only unelected president in American history. So we went from the most popular president to a president nobody voted for. Wait a minute, you may ask, why didn't I know that? Wasn't Richard Nixon a criminal? So clearly where the young people are in America today, rehabilitating Richard Nixon. That's the, that is the, that's, that's where it's at. Clearly the CIA is to blame. And in, in the rant, he talks about how Nixon got the most number of votes, and then he was pushed out of office. What happened? I mean, and you're like, I don't know. What happened? Did anything happen? He, you know, he resigned because he would have been impeached. Yeah, but it was the CIA. Don't you know that it was the CIA? So it wasn't Nixon's fault. And it's like, by the way, Nixon was got that many votes because the Democratic Party lost its damn mind and nominated George McGovern after a total meltdown. What are you talking about? It wasn't that people were like, damn, I love Richard Nixon. America was not in love with Richard Nixon. America was repulsed by the Democratic Party, whatever. So anyway, I just found that funny. But then there was news about Tucker Carlson, Eric Wemple, and so, what do you call it, Huffington Post. I'm so bored by this. I'm just I am too. I'm like bored. Shop I, online while you. Don't shop online. <laughs> we're, help us move through it expeditiously. Huffington Post. I'll move through it expeditiously by having nothing to say about it. Huffington Post got a hold of texts. M&M. Got a hold of text between the website secured the message. I'm reading the excellent Eric Wemple and his write up of this in the Post. The website secured the messages from Mark Bankston, a Texas lawyer, last year, who last year was involved in litigation from families of Sandy Hook victims in a defamation suit against Vo- Jones, who repeatedly claimed that the school massacre was a hoax. In the case, lawyers for Jones accidentally sent the context of his phone to counsel for the Sandy Hook plaintiffs. And of course, there were Tucker Carlson texts in there. And I agree with I agree with a lot of what Eric Wemple came to. And it's interesting to read the way that Carlson is talking to Jones and being careful. So here's a quote when Jones complains that the Daily Caller, which Carlson co-founded, wouldn't allow Jones Jones's InfoWars website to feature Daily Caller staff. Carlson responded, blanking crazy. I'm really sorry. I saw this. It's talking about Jones highlighting the company suspended by Twitter for a video about ultraviolet light being used to kill the coronavirus. Carlson responds, I saw this. They're clamping down. We'll be China soon. So he's like placating. He's playing along with Alex Jones as he goes and 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 then always 
the, the ask, are you free this afternoon? Let's get on the phone. Let's get you on TV and get some, get some ratings. Let's get some ratings out there. Also, as Wemple points out, and I think this is a big misconception about that show. People are cynical about Carlson being cynical, right? That he doesn't believe it. I think he believes a lot of it, right? I think that he does believe that Richard Nixon was set up by the CIA and that America is worse off that Richard Nixon, founder of the EPA, did not it did not have the full second term. And the last point that he had was that Jones is part of Carlson's bubble and he talks talks about how there is this media ecosystem around Carlson that he is at the center of and that's all true. So it was just a little interesting insight. Are we ready for M&M's? Hell yeah. Tucker defeating M&M's. <laughs> you know what? What's the backstory? Tell us the first back, the backstory. The backstory is that Tucker Carlson made a stink about the outfit on one of the M&M's, Well, the right? green M&M. Yeah, what happened? Right-wingers were upset that the green M&M, who used to wear sort of like white go-go boots and was... Oh, right. She was adorable. Right. Well, they... they I can't believe I'm about to utter this sentence. <laughs> They desexualized the candy, oh. so the and 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 they definitely made the M and M's more of like a gender neutral Sam Bankman Freed's girlfriend situation. It was more of a <laughs> more of a the M and M's became more of a polycule okay. than with traditional gender roles. Okay, and uh, so now Mars announced that the the candies as spokesmen for for the M and M's are on pause. In wake of the uproar basically created by Tucker Carlson. Eminem said in a statement Monday, in the last year, we've made some changes to our spokes candies. We weren't sure if anyone would even notice. And we definitely didn't think, oh, I'm sorry, CBS News, do I need to have 11 pop-ups to read an article? Would be put on, and we definitely didn't think it would break the internet. I don't, let's take it easy, M&Ms. I don't know that you, I don't, I don't know that the Mars candy company broke the internet. Well, I think we're okay. And they said that they were just going to take an indefinite pause. Now, I like the two M&Ms, right? That's the peanut M&M, the yellow one. And then is it the red M&M? His, like his, and they're like, it's like a buddy. Yeah, they're partners. They're doing stuff. And the yellow M&M is done. They're like, oh, you know what they're like? Do you remember Pinky in the Brain? Yes. Okay. So they're like a Pinky in the Brain energy. One is bit, red is bitter and smart. And yellow is pleasant and dumb, and then they look funny when they fall down the chimney or whatever. Because I am a dummy and am easily entertained by these things. So I, for one, mourn the loss of the spokes candies, but hope that when they return, they're all highly sexualized. I hope that all the candies are highly, highly sexualized. Okay. What do we got next? Oh, you saw. You must have seen this. Hulu. 1619 project. I did not see that. It is, it's special time. The New York Times 1619 project, terrible 1619 project. So this is an interview. We'll put it in the show notes and you'll read it in High El Recho's, our newsletter that I hope you've already signed up for. But it's an interview. The New York Times interviews itself. The New York Times interviews Nicole Hannah-Jones to talk about the 1619 project documentary series on Hulu. And this is, they always move, they're always moving the goalposts a little bit on the 1619 Project. Yeah, 100%. Uh, oh, it's not actually history. It's just. It's uh, this, yeah. it's that, it's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Please watch like by the children's Rorschach book. It's Rorschach Tech. Yeah. Rorschach Test. And now what the Times says the 1619 Project was and is, 
it argued that 1619, the the first slave ship, is widely believed to have to have arrived in what is now the U.S. Thanks, Netherlands was a foundational, was as foundational to America as the year 1776, and that the leg, legacy of chattel slavery still shapes our society. The last part is true to some degree. At certain points, the 1619 Project was said to be that 1619 was the real founding of yeah, America. Yeah. And now it's like, what are they, what is it that- it, That it still impacts. Was as foundational. Yeah, yeah. It was, as, so 1619, as important as 1776, dubious claim. And I want to read what Nicole Hannah-Jones says. In one episode, and by the way, this is a woman who says that she is a historian. In one episode, we talk about how capitalism in the United States was shaped largely by chattel slavery and the exploitation of labor, even when workers are paid. So now it's everything? Okay, so chattel slavery. So capitalism in the United States was largely shaped by chattel slavery. Let me tell you something. It is true that there were slaves in the North, and it is true that Ben Franklin had slaves. It is true. It's all true. All of this is true. The Southern economy that was the slaveocracy that was predicated on chattel slavery was an economic catastrophe. The origins of American capitalism, you know where they are? In the mills of New England, which were run by water wheels and not with slave labor. The growth of commerce of the Yankee Clippers and all of that stuff. It's not to say that slavery didn't have a part in it. It's not to say any of that stuff. But to say something as obviously false as that capitalism in the United States was largely shaped by chattel slavery, no. You could say it was partially shaped or it was a factor. But you would not say that Yankee mercantilism was shaped by human chattel slavery. And then, talk about goalpost moving, you get to just say the next thing, which is like, oh, yeah, and all paid labor, too. It's all, it's all slavery. All, all labor is slavery. And it goes on from there. And I'm just so exhausted of the New York Times taking this person so seriously. We'll get used to it. I I hope this I hope the Hulu series represents the last step. I guess it's almost Black History Month, but I hope this represents the last step of taking Nicole Hannah Jones seriously. You're going to be very disappointed. You think this goes on from here? Oh yeah. You, I can't imagine it. it imagine it's got to be. Mind. It must be embarrassing for the times. Expand your mind. It must be embarrassing for the times. Have you met anybody? I I have, and she is embarrassing. Well, Chris, we're, we're all entitled to be wrong. Well, uh, some of us more than others. <laughs> yes, true, true. Oh, yes, I love this item. Oh, yeah, I wanted to get rid of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Head, headline. I wanted to get rid of all of our remaining items until the style section. Oh, come on. He yeah. Headline, Washington Post, doomsday clock hits 90 seconds to midnight. It's most dire prediction ever. I have such a thing about the doomsday clock and how Why? stupid the doomsday clock is. What a preposterously dumb thing. And here's a picture of these weenuses standing <laughs> around with the, and they have the little clock up. You'll see it when you click on the link. Collection of weenuses standing around the clock. Or Look the at these people. Oh, I like these it. people say, these five people say it's, it's 90 seconds to midnight. Why do they see this? Well, Ukraine and this, and then the climate and da, 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 da. Throughout the Cold War, after the Cold War, whatever. So it's bulletin the, of atomic scientists. Okay. Yes, exactly. So it's the it's it's the 
during the Cold War, just for context for people, these were the anti-nuke people who didn't believe that Ronald Reagan was anti-nuke. They thought Ronald Reagan was pro-nuke. No one, by the way, no one did more to rid the world of the dangers of nuclear war. The, the people who kept moving, the, the, the moving of the second hand, every time Ronald Reagan would, you know, do anything, move this, oh, we're two seconds closer to midnight. It, the world is about to end. That these people were, could not have been wronger about what, how the Cold War would end. They, were thor- they should be thoroughly discredited because the way the Cold War ended was that we pushed the Soviet Union over a cliff, right? Star Wars mocked, everything mocked. And I'm not saying that they should have just said, oh, this is good, they shouldn't, I'm not saying they should have unquestioningly gone along with Reagan's strategy, but they were pure D wrong. They could not have been wronger and the world got a lot safer and, and things got scary for a while and back and forth. Just stop with the doomsday clock. Stop with the phrase doomsday clock. If you knew, if you knew, sir, you would not be wearing that outfit on stage. If you knew, if you had it wired, this is not what you'd be doing. Go split an atom. Like, come on. Chris, it's our final item. Oh, this is really interesting. Not to you. I stipulate that this is- I didn't even know who the person was. Okay. Ivan Provorov, player for the Philadelphia Flyers, boo flyers, stipulate for the record, boo flyers, did not- Wear refused to wear. They had a LGBTQ pride night for the Flyers. And for warm-ups, they wore rainbow jerseys. The Flyers were asked to wear rain Flyers players were asked to wear rainbow jerseys for warm-ups and sticks wrapped with rainbow tape. And Provorov said he that that was not in accord with his faith as an Russian Orthodox, as a sincere member of the Russian Orthodox Church, that he did not want to advertise for that, and he sat out of warm-ups and then played in the game. Now, the hockey hockey journalism is a word, a phrase that I just used, but hockey journalism is heavily Canadian for obvious reasons, and the Canadian culture is, takes this stuff very seriously. They have really tough hate crimes laws in Canada, hate speech and all this stuff. So the... Initial response comes down really hard on Provorov and how dare you, how dare you, how dare you do this? You're a homophobe and then all of that stuff. And it was a, it was a mini furor inside sports journalism with a lot of the, con, you know, ESPN, which is ridiculous on this. St- the, the politicization, I, I keep threatening to do this, but sometime when you're away, maybe Colin will just do it with me. But just a whole episode on how terrible ESPN is in every, from beginning to end, the awfulness of ESPN and how everything is political. And we can't, why can't we just go back to showing Korean baseball? Why can't we just chill out and just, this is where we go to not be in politics. Can we relax with this a little bit? Because when you watch ESPN, there's, there's the politics part and then there's the crime part. So it's like, what are the political controversies in sports today? And now who has been arrested in sports today? And you're like, when do we get to the game? When do we get to the scores? Anyway, so then, not surprisingly, a lot of people who, like you, had never heard of Provorov, after he was attacked for not wearing the jersey, have turned him into a right-wing culture war champion 
and they love him and he's great and how dare we you know we live in a fascist state where you can't even refuse so it was a good if you want to just see a microcosm of how these culture war controversies work you have a nice encapsulated media two tempests in two separate teapots uh uh and the mutual outrage sustainability machine that is our news media finally we come to my style section which is this wonderful wall street journal article about a chess bot that people are obsessed with and it's a cute cat named mittens and let me just read from the article since chess.com introduced this bot with the avatar of a cuddly big-eyed kitten on January 1st, the obsession with playing her has been astonishing. Mittens has crashed the website through its sheer popularity and helped drive more people to play chess than even the Queen's Gambit. Really? A video that American Grandmaster Hikaru Nakamura posted to YouTube titled, Mittens the Chess Bot Will Make You Quit Chess, has already racked up more than 3 million views. This bot is a psycho, the streamer and international master, Levy Rosman, tweeted after a vicious checkmate this month. A day later, he added, the chess world has to unite against against Mittens. He was joking, mostly. It's So Mittens is AI and, like, is a super grandmaster who, you know, is programmed to play people. Did you play chess? Are you a chess no, player? No, but I'm like obsessed. Your chess I, obsession is. I've, I know. I think it's super interesting, and I feel like it's such a sign of intelligence. And I do not know how to play. <laughs> yeah. I. You're very intelligent. I have no idea how to play chess, but I do love these chess stories. I love. I'm doing Georgetown this semester, and I'm a fellow at the in their Institute of Politics, and I was at. University of Michigan this week for a talk with some students up there. And it's funny for me, who graduated from a less selective school than those, and with a with a two as the first digit in my graduating GPA, it's so funny for me to get to be in these ven- venerated and venerable spaces where people like you could go to school and learn with your big brains. And I keep, I'm just always worried that I'm going to be discovered. You probably know how to play chess though. As the learned homunculus. Well, maybe, maybe you and I should play chess against each other sometime. I would. You- My eldest man child long ago, when he was still in the single digits of age, bored of playing chess with me because it was too easy to beat me. All right, Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads and chris mine had to be maureen dowd's article i can't really call it a report on it was something nancy pelosi that was like if you sicked the onion on how would the new york times cover nancy pelosi's exit from power this is what some. This is what the mittens of, the mittens imitator of the New York Times would have produced, and it's just about how thrilled, how happy Read Nancy Pelosi clung on to power until she's you know 107, but she's just so happy now that she has no power. The headline: Nancy Pelosi liberated and loving. It. Ah, okay, it's so like. Parodic. But then this paragraph. I was expecting King Lear. Howling at the storm, but I found Jean Kelly singing in the rain. Pelosi was not crying in her soup. She was basking as she scarfed down French fries, a truffle butter roll, and chocolate-covered macadamia nuts, all before the main course. 
She was literally in the pink, ablaze in a hot pink pantsuit and matching Jimmy Choo stilettos, shooting the breeze about Broadway, music, and sports. Showing off her four-inch heels, the 82-year-old said, I highly recommend suede because it's like a bedroom slipper. Where'd they have lunch? Um, I oh, mean, the wow. Four Seasons. Wow. That's a big lunch. Hard-hitting, hard-hitting journalism. I mean, I think it's I think it's fine to write a puff piece. Like, you can write a valedictory piece. And if, obviously, Maureen Dowd is a great writer. That is all true. But this thing is forever. It is a forever long piece. It is um, it, the, the stunning length at which it goes. And the headline, liberated and loving it. I mean, like you say, the onion... The Onion could not do better in in spoofing the approach. It's just, it's, as the kids would say, a lot. We will link it in our newsletter. See it for yourself. Oh, my obsession. So, Taylor Swift. T-Swift. Do you have feelings about Taylor Swift? No. I like her. I like her. I think it's good. Basically good. I think it's fine. I love, what what's her album? 1989. It's a great album. And by the way, Ryan Adams covered it song for song, and his cover is really good of it. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. What is here or there is that Amy Klobuchar, Mike Lee, and Richard Blumenstein, Blumenthal? Yeah. Yes, of Connecticut, made utter fools of themselves having a hearing, quoting Taylor Swift lyrics, to talk about where Richard Blumenthal saying me Ticketmaster needs to look at itself and say, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. And it was just all awful and stupid. And they're accusing Ticketmaster of monopolistic tactics because their website crashed when they tried to sell Taylor Swift tickets. No one seemed to ignore, and Taylor Swift, by the way, threw Ticketmaster right under the bus on this one. I will point out just on the merits of the case, the actual monopoly here is not Ticketmaster. The actual monopoly is Taylor Swift. So the Senate should demand that Taylor Swift perform five concerts a day, seven days a week, until all of the teens who want to see Taylor Swift and their mothers can go to the concert. And then finally, the monopoly will be broken. But the idea of these hearings, and they happen, it's not just this. When do we, so you remember once upon a time that if you could get a celebrity with a cause to come and testify at your hearing, you could bring attention to something, right? So we're going to talk about, you remember like education in the arts and a bunch of celebrities would fly into Washington and do meetings. Like I got to meet cool people. I've over the years, I've gotten to meet cool people when they're in talking about that stuff. Like David Byrne comes to Washington to talk about that. And they're like, well, maybe we can get it. They're, they're lobbying Congress to do something. And they come down to get attention. Or sometimes Congress will invite a high profile person to a hearing to try to get attention for the hearing. Now this is the opposite. This is a story nobody, it's not a, whatever anybody thinks about antitrust, right? This is not it. But these people want to be on TV and TV wants to talk about Taylor Swift, right? So when, you, when TV or social media says, we're going to talk about Congress, people are like, we're going to we'll jump off a bridge. I do not want to hear, I'm not willing to listen to anybody talk about Congress. But if they say, what if we told you that it was really about Taylor Swift? Here's a tip, news media. People still don't care. And they know you're lame for trying to drag. So this is not trying to drag an issue into 
This is not using a celebrity to drag an issue into the fore. This is just trying to get to talk about a celebrity and play Taylor Swift songs as your bumper music and try to get on television. It's lame. I hate it. Please stop. Chris, that brings us to my favorite section of the week, which is reader mail. And we got several. Oh, we did? Suggestions for media swag. We did? Yep. Oh, my gosh. So, first up, we have... This is amazing. Yeah, I love the umbrella. Adam Packer from Indianapolis, Indiana, writes, I inherited this 1990 umbrella from my grandmother who lived across the river in Martin's Ferry and subscribed to the Times Leader. It's a little... I had this umbrella. You did? Yes. Fantastic. (laughs) But works, and I still use it. The news stories featured on the panels are classic small-town paper stories whose headlines should bring a smile even if you aren't from the Valley. Go, Riders. Heck, yeah. Go get it, Adam Packer. I'm boo, Riders, but, like, Martin's Ferry's right across the river from Wheeling, West Virginia. Same company that I started working for owned that paper. Check it out. I hope we can get a – can we put a picture of, of some of this in the high L retros? Okay. Okay, and then keep going. I love this one. Kevin from the Twin Cities. Hi, Kevin, my fellow Twin Cityan, has a Thomson Reuters pizza cover cu- cutter, and he says, this pizza cutter is my favorite. It's the best pizza cutter I've ever owned, and it does look kind of awesome, and it also looks like a beer yeah, can it's got opener. It's got a bottle opener. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I want to know, Kevin, how many pizza cutters have you owned? What's your count? How much pizza yeah, are you that eating? that looks good. I like it. That looks really good. That's, All right. Look at this guy, David Smith of Warrington. Hit it. This is great. Sends in a McNeil Laird NewsHour coffee mug with a kind of, I, I'm tr- like a New Yorker cartoon kind of drawing of McNeil and Laird on it. That is really classic and awesome. I love this. And then Scott Stewart in Northern Ooh. Virginia sends buttons. He says, in response to your call for listeners, press swag, I'm sending you a few fra- favorites. These are great. I very much enjoy the podcast and look forward to listening to the next installment. So he has a Richard M. Nixon inauguration button from ABC News. Uh, he has a... From the Tucker Carlson collection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he has a great McLaughlin group, 1992, unconventional wisdom. My Manon, Martin. Pat Buchanan. And I love this. A 1988 Bob Novak for pre- for president button with the slogan, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And a, but the, that would be my my Eliana for president, no more, Ms., no more Ms. Nice Gal. Yeah, I love that. But I love this ABC News, Richard Nixon inauguration pin. That's just fantastic what nice people that you guys would send these in i love this so much okay and then we have a letter from susan in chicago who says dear eliana and chris ever since you talked about jeff bezos and the washington post cuts when you discussed how mr bezos really could afford not to make the cuts i've been meaning to send you this clip from citizen kane with Charles Foster Kane's response to his former guardian, who reminds him that he is losing money on his newspaper. The whole clip is only two and a half minutes, but the relevant exchange is at the end, starting at the two-minute mark. Let's play that. Let's play that. Maybe somebody without any money or property. Yes, yes, yes. That would money be too bad. Well, I happened to see your financial statement today, Charles. Oh, did you? Now, tell me honestly, my boy. Don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise? This inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. 
You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. That is, we are, I, I will say, and not, you know, I'm corny, you know, I'm corny deep down, deep down. I am, I am corny. I love our, I love our listeners. That is such a great, it's that's really such, great. That's such a great thing. And I so love it. this clip, a clip that I know and love and a Martin's Ferry Times leader umbrella still in circulation. I mean, what can I say? But thank you. Oh, and I want to mention before we get off reader mail, we've received your submissions. I'm looking for a Twitter caddy, somebody to manage my Twitter account. You can email us at, where do they email us? Wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. Wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. Mm-hmm. You can email us. We'll take submissions through the end of, we'll say, we'll close Nate on Monday. So get them in by Monday. And then next week, we'll set up some Zoom interviews with the applicants who we think are neither lame sweater will interview you Nate Nate's, <laughs> if I could hire Nate sweater to do it we would be all set this thing is this thing is legit but the people who are neither too weird nor too lame we will interview we'll set up zoom interviews and we'll talk to them and we'll get a Twitter caddy in position all right Chris that brings us to your favorite time of the week which is favorite items where I am forced to say something nice but you will lead by example, so take us away. Well, mine is a sad. It's it's a it's a it's a sad f- favorite item. It, Alan Kamizarov, who I worked with for a long time at Fox News, passed away recently, and Alan was just you know, in journalism, it's really important to have people who keep their heads screwed on, who understand what we're there for, who understand what it's about. And Alan, I worked with Alan on debates and election nights and traveled across the country and did all kind of stuff with Alan. And he put together such a great team. And the thing that made him good is that he wasn't ideological. He wasn't there. He didn't have an agenda. And neither did, neither did he want to be sensationalistic. He wanted to get the job done and he wanted it to look good. He wanted it to look good. He wanted it to be understandable. He wanted the graphics right. He wanted the stuff right. And he had a great knack for putting, when, when there were disputes and there were disruptions, he had a great knack for recentering us on purpose and getting to where we were supposed to be. He was a real pleasure to work with, a real professional. And I'm so sorry for his family for the loss. Uh, but Alan is very much in my heart and, and, and those of lots and lots of people. Mine is very different. And it is a wonderful review of a new Al Sharpton documentary called Lionized by Andrew Stiles at the Free Beacon. Who did Um, the documentary? The documentary is produced by John Legend. Oh, boy. Yes. Oh. And it was introduced by Robert De Niro at the Tribeca Film Festival. And so I just want to read a couple paragraphs that... The review is fantastic. So Andrew Stiles writes, It probably would be possible to make a good documentary about Al Sharpton, one that offered some nuanced insight into the life of a genuinely bizarre man, the former child preacher from the streets of Brooklyn, mentored by the likes of Jesse Jackson and James Brown, who would go on to become one of the most recognizable and expensively dressed demagogues of his generation. As Chris Rock used to call him, Reverend Hotcomb. Yeah. 
That film would be nothing like Loudmouth, the John Legend-produced Sharpton documentary available now for purchase, obviously, on iTunes and Amazon Video after a limited run in theaters and a star-studded world premiere at last year's Tribeca Film Festival. Robert De Niro, the Hollywood deadbeat and Democratic activist, reportedly introduced the film by describing its subject as so soft-spoken and so reasonable. Attendees who knew or knew of Sharpton before his 21st century rebrand laughed out loud, but the actor wasn't joking. Oh, boy. Um, It's a fantastic review, so we'll link it in our newsletter. And that is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about or a Twitter caddy candidate for Mr. Chris Dyerwalt, please email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star glowing review. Just search for Wretches. <laughs> <laughs>